Um, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 27. So here's where we're at in Acts. We've got two chapters left, and we'll cover all of 27 and a bit of 28 today, and then we'll finish out Acts next week. And, uh, and then we'll move into uh, a study in the Psalms through the summer. So we'll just kind of keep doing that. We started that last year. We're going to do some more of those this year. Uh, the theme of that will be just the, the idea of aligning ourselves with God's heart. Uh, that's, that's what the Psalms are really helpful for doing, and, and so I, hopefully they'll help us uh, do that also. Uh, something interesting about today that's worthy of note is today marks, at least on the Christian calendar, it's not a, not a specific day, but just the timeline of events from Easter to now, today marks the day of Pentecost. So nearly 2,000 years ago, the disciples gathered in the upper room. Most of you are very familiar with this, um, this narrative. And in that uh, gathering, they were praying, devoting themselves to prayer, devoting themselves to waiting patiently on the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then the narrative reads this way. It says, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We hear them telling, this is what the people would testify as they went out and began to tell the works of God in these different tongues that they had received. It's all these people are gathered around from different nations and they said, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And then Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon. And at the end of the sermon, they interrupt him. It says there that they were cut to the heart. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ever since that moment, the church has been boldly proclaiming Jesus to sinners throughout the centuries. Now looking at everything that's happening in our country, everything that's been happening around the world over the last few months, I think we need to pray. We need to gather, we need to pray, we need to pray that the Lord would grant mercy and grace in our time of need. We need to pray that He would send laborers into the field for the sake of the gospel. We need to pray that God would save the lost. We need to pray that God would unify the body of Christ in love to God and in service to others. We need to pray for revival. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that we do not exist in a vacuum of time where we do not have You with us. But we exist in a moment of time that You've ordained from the beginning of time, equipped with the Holy Spirit to proclaim Christ to the corners of the earth. That the mission that began back at the beginning of Acts that mission of Christ coming through the people of Christ continues today. Father, we can look at our timelines on social media. We can look at the news feeds. We can look into our own lives and just the troubles that are there. And we can begin to feel a sense of worry, doubt, fear, 
questions about are you there kind of arise in our mind. Questions regarding the, the wonder of do you hear us infiltrate our thoughts? Our hearts wonder from you as we seek for some way to save ourselves in the midst of all this pain, of all this loss. Father, I ask now for your intervention. We're told in Hebrews chapter 4 that we can now come boldly before the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace in our time of need because we have a sympathetic high priest who is in heaven. He's not far from us, but He is near to us. His heart goes out to us. It feels what we feel. He sees what we see. He knows the pain of sin and suffering better than we do. And He's there. He's there as the one who conquered death and defeated sin finally forever. He's there as the one who strengthens us in our weakness. He's there as the one who heals us in our infirmities. He's there as the one who gives us boldness when we have nothing but fear to offer. Father, me and these brothers and sisters that are gathered here, those who are listening online, we we submit ourselves now to You. We humble ourselves before You. Forgive us, Lord, for idle words spoken over the last few months. Forgive us, Lord, for speaking before praying. Forgive us before acting before praying. Forgive us, Father, for our doubt, our lack of trust in You. Forgive us for wondering, where is God? Forgive us, Father, for overlooking the pain and the suffering of this world as though we're unaffected by it. God, teach us sympathy. Teach us love. Teach us to know and to understand the height and the depth and the width and the length of Your love for us that we might walk in it fully. That we might understand it as we turn from our sin and turn to You. Father, I pray that here in this county You spark revival through believers all over this place. And I pray that You ignite our hearts with a, a deep concern for lost people. When we say lost people, it's not some just euphoric phrase that we might use, but when we say someone that's lost, we're thinking of our neighbor or our cousin or our aunt or our mother or father or brother or sister, someone who doesn't know You as Savior. Give us deep concern for the souls of man. And then lead us, Father, in boldness, Lead us in preparation. Help us to be fruitful for the harvest. God, we pray You bring revival to this land. That You heal us, Father. Lord, one of the most one of the most I guess the word would be good things about all of this darkness in our land 
is that it gives a great opportunity for light to shine. Help us shine, Father. According to Matthew 5, 16, help us shine in good works so that all men may see those good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Father, would you lead us into life on mission for Jesus Christ, for the good of others and the glory of your name alone. Father, we pray as John, the beloved apostle, said, let us become little (laughs) so that you may become great. We humble ourselves before you so that we might exalt your name cheerfully in the world. Father, we don't don't pray as a last resort. We don't pray as a way to just offer up some sort of condolence in a time of need. As as if to say, hey, I'm participating in, in some way. We don't pray like those who think prayer is just nice words. We pray because it moves the heart of God for us to pray. And it moves our heart to be centered on You. This is why we pray. We pray because we can do nothing apart from Your help. And so if we feel helpless, good. Let us turn to You. If we feel hopeless, good. Let us turn to You. If we feel as there's nothing that we can offer, wonderful. Let us turn to God who can. Lord, we love You. We need You. Pour out Your Spirit on us as You did at the day of Pentecost that we might see thousands of people come to know and follow You as Savior. We love You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Whew! That feels good. It feels good to transfer a burden from my shoulders to the Lord. Amen? I hope you all will be praying more this week than in weeks previous. Um, there's a passage here to preach. So let's get to that. Our passage here covers Paul's journey from Caesarea to Rome. He's going to go by boat. The journey is a bit wild. There's a lot that happens. Uh, I want to give you some of the details of the journey. Uh, Josh, did we get that map? I'm s- if, if, if we did, cool. Um, the journey is around 1,300 miles. Should have taken about five weeks. Um, but when all is said and done, it ends up being more than 1,500 miles and takes close to six months. What really stands out in this passage is the same thing that stands out throughout Acts. It is the mission of Christ continuing through the people of Christ. It's a story about that. So 
We're going to observe how God accomplishes His purpose through those who trust and obey His Word. So let's take a look at this long, kind of arduous journey. Let's observe God's purposes as we look at it. Let's see the ways in which these believers trust the Word of God and in which they obey the Word of God. I'll just start in Acts 27, 1-5. through Great. So we've got this map here. You can kind of follow along as I'm reading this uh, as you see the names pop up. So when it was decided that we should sell for Italy, this is Luke writing, he's saying we, because uh, he's going to be on the trip also. He says, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan, uh, the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Ardromidium, which is going to be a little place you can see. Of course, I didn't share the map that has it. Anyway, it's going to be up there close to where you see Ephesus, uh, near a place called Traus, which we've talked about before. Um, so this is where this boat is headed from Caesarea. It's going to travel along the ports. So it says, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. We put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, which was a Macedonian from Thessalonica. You remember may remember him from earlier on in the, in the narrative. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. This is kind of throughout the journey he gets to do this. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. So I'm just going to kind of set this up by helping you see who the characters are. The characters are Paul, uh, who's the apostle that we've been following for quite some time now. You have Luke. You have Aristarchus, who is a disciple of Paul's. You have Julius, who is the centurion that's uh, kind of leading the guard that's carrying Paul. But also there's going to be other persons on, uh, with them on this journey. These people would have been the crew, but they also would have been more prisoners. Now, some of these prisoners were probably simply going to Rome to, um, to, to fight in the Colosseum for entertainment. So they began in a port ship headed to uh, Dramatium, I'm not sure how to say that, which will take them through other ports so that they can get on a ship, eventually something much larger, uh, some sort of transport ship, to Italy. Now, Paul has longed for the gospel to get to Spain, which would have been west of Rome, and he wanted to use Rome as a launch pad for this. He writes that much in his letter to the Romans. He prepared the Romans by sending them this letter about three years earlier, prepared them for his coming, uh, for them to be strengthened as a church. Uh, and then in Acts, um, earlier on in Acts, we saw where Paul was guaranteed. Uh, to testify before Caesar in Rome. that He would testify in the same way there as he had been testifying all along. So uh, just kind of a, a roundabout way of looking at that is to say this, God is accomplishing His purposes. God is moving the mission forward. He's continuing to do what He's been doing from day one. He's orchestrating everything according to His plan, and it's happening as believers are trusting and obeying God's Word. Now, accompanying Paul are two familiar faces, Aristarchus of Thessalonica and Dr. Luke. Now, Julius allowed Paul's friends to care for him along the journey. This would have been Aristarchus and Luke. Plus, when they stop in some places, they get to go visit the church. 
What I want you to notice is how God draws believers together. He draws them together with others who are also trusting His Word, who are also obeying His Word, and all of that is for the sake of accomplishing His purposes. It's not just so that we might have friends, it's that we have friends who are on mission with us. We have like-minded believers to go and do the work of God with. Christian friendship is truly a gift from God. It's rooted in the relationship, the common relationship that we have with Jesus, who calls us His friends. That is why looking out today, on one hand, I celebrate with you. You celebrate that we're here and we're worshiping together. But a quick survey of the audience, and we begin to think of faces who maybe are listening in today but are not present, or maybe who aren't listening in or present. And we begin to, uh, we remember people who maybe we've forgotten or who maybe uh, are dear to us and we wish to see them again. So on one hand, we're celebrating, but on the other hand, we're lamenting the fact that we're not all together today, that the effects of COVID still have us scattered. They still have us out of a routine. They still have us missing one another. And we fill the void. As much as I love seeing all of you and as much as you love seeing each other, we cannot wait to see our other brothers and sisters who are not yet with us. This is that deep community, that, that familial kind of friendship that Christ creates among a body of believers. Lord willing, we'll be together again soon in full. Amen? Let's keep reading in verse 6 now. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of, of Lasse. So you can see Fair Havens there off the little island there of Crete. This is where they sailed to kind of, the island was blocking the wind for them. They were able to make better ground. But you can see they're going to be in trouble soon because they'll be back out in open sea. Let's keep reading. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because of even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the village will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to, to, the, and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out the sea and there... Uh, from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So, just to kind of summarize, in Myra, what happens is Julius finds a ship that's heading for Italy, so he's able to bring all the passengers on board, and what we learn is that once all the passengers were on board, once the crew of the ship was there, the sum total was around 276 passengers. It's a lot of people traveling together on a wooden boat. This is not your major cruise line vessel that maybe some of you have gone on uh, recently. This is a wood boat which would not hold up to these storms very well. So they, they choose not to listen, even though the, the, uh, the conditions for selling begin to deteriorate and things get difficult. 
due to the contrary winds. So they stop in fair havens to rest and just make other plans. And it was there that Paul stands up and he says, hey, I've got a lot of experience traveling. I've experienced three shipwrecks even. This isn't wise for us to keep going. We probably should stop now. And they don't listen. They just decide the majority rules, hey, we can't spend the winter here, which are the most difficult months for traveling. We need to press on. Now, Paul isn't explicitly speaking God's Word here, but I think it's worthy of note that he is being obedient to God. He's being obedient to His Word by showing love and care, concern for other people, even pagans. Even people he doesn't have anything in common with, but which he no doubt loved and wanted to know the Gospel. We also must learn to love and care for others in the everyday events of life if we want to be those who truly trust and obey God's Word. Who knows how God might use you in the everyday events of your life? Let's keep reading. Verse 13. But when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island um, called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the uh, Certus, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, meaning it just kept on storming, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last lost. So everyone in this moment is hungry, they're hopeless. Um, the journey is kind of going smoothly at first. And you can imagine how the crew may have ridiculed Paul, like, what does this prisoner know about selling? What, what is he going to tell us? But things change, right? After they made it past where they wanted to make it past and thought we could spend the winter there, they're like, no, we can keep going. Well, in that moment, a violent storm called a northeaster comes down out of the mountain and takes over the ship quite literally. The crew can't fight against it. It drives them southwest. The storm forces the ship to drift toward uh, Cyrene. So you can see where it began to drift, um, at least by our estimation, south. They find shelter from the storm at Cotta, where they haul in the lifeboat, they lower the drift anchor, hoping to slow down the ship to protect them from plowing into the deadly shoals. And the next day, they begin to jettison the cargo. They're like, let's lighten the ship, cause it to be a little more buoyant, and we can float on top of this thing. And on the third day, they threw the tackle overboard, meaning we're still trying to lighten the ship. And even that wasn't enough. The efforts weren't helping, and soon everyone was full of despair. They're panicking. And Luke writes, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now this whole episode remind me, reminds me of what it's like to not trust God. To not obey His Word. It's easy for us to look for a way to, to save ourselves when times are troubling. To begin to do what we can do, what we think is best. 
But true salvation comes not by throwing things overboard, rather by throwing ourselves down before the Lord. When we do that, we find a refuge. We find a strength greater than our sin. We find a strength bigger than our circumstances. I ask, my friends, what's keeping you from casting yourself before the Lord? Your problems before Him. You cannot bear the weight of them on your own. You can't bear the weight of your sin on your own if you're an unbeliever. You need a Savior. Verse 21 through 26, the journey continues. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Wow. So in summary, Paul's letting them know, hey, we're going to make it because of the providential protection of God. The God whom I serve, the God whom I know. This Lord, this God will keep His promises. I must testify before Caesar, none of your lives are going to be lost. This is a reminder for us that we too have Promises of God's providence. Promises of God's protection. Promises of God's being with us in difficult times that we can trust, that we can obey, that we can heed in our time of need. You see, we need only to trust Him as the waves are crashing around us. We need to obey His Word. We need to trust His Word. In Isaiah 43, the Lord speaks through the prophet and He says, Do not fear... For I have redeemed you. The idea there is if the Lord has redeemed you, there is no need to fear a thing. This is very similar to Romans 8 where Paul writes, if God is for us, who could be against us? He goes on to say through Isaiah there, I have called you by your name. Isn't it great to serve a God who not only has redeemed you as a people, as the church, but He's called each of you by name. He knows you. He knows your circumstance. He's wired you the way you are. He's placed you where He's placed you for the sake of His cause, for the glory of His name. He says, you are mine. Now again, if God says you are mine, who's going to argue with that? No one. No one. That's why Jesus promises His followers in John chapter 10 that the Lord, He says, God has given you into My hand and those who are in My hand I will in no way cast out nor will they be separated from Me. You're His. You belong to the Lord. You're safe. You're kept. Well, Kyle, what about my life? What about all these things going on in my life? Those things have no bearing on your eternal keeping your eternal protection. 
The trials of this life are but for the fortitude of our faith. They're to make us stronger, not weaker. They're to make us trust more, not doubt more. They're to make us seek God more. Who knows, if maybe there were no trials in our life, how many of us might not ever seek God? They're a gentle reminder that we are not God, but that we need Him daily. They help us. And in that way, trials are good for us. Good for our souls. Are good eternally. He goes on to say, through Isaiah, I will be with you when you pass through the waters. Oh, how sweet it is to serve a God who says, I'm with you. I'm with you. The waters won't wash over your head. I'm with you. They're not going to sweep you away. I'm with you. The flood may come, but you're safe. I'm with you. I believe that it's this kind of faith, this kind of trust in the Lord that will set believers apart from the world in dark times. Because you and I don't have to look to a government to fix the things that are going on in our world today. In fact, we can look at history and say governments often make things far worse than they do far good. You and I don't have to look to some other thing, some other God, some other thing that we could manufacture. We have God on our side. We have God working all things together for the good of us who love Him and are called according to His plans. And that is what sets us apart. It's our trust in God's presence. It's our trust in God's promises that allow us to fight fear with faith. And in that way, we shine the light of hope into a world that is hopeless. And the world that is hopeless will look at this light of hope and they'll say, I need that. I don't know how you can have such hope in a time like this, but I want it. Tell me how. This is real faith. Acts 27, 27 through 32, the journey continues. When the 14th night, two weeks had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on that, uh, on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they're still 90 feet below, which are still about 90 feet below where they are now, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. In other words, you've got to obey what God said if you want God's protection. You've got to follow Him. You've got to trust Him. You've got to believe what He says. And so what do they do? It says, Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Amen. They said, okay. We're all in, Paul. We're going to trust your God in this moment. 
And what's interesting about this is the sailors took a moment to pray to their gods, but there was no intervention. There's no light of day. There's no help. And so they decide to abandon ship. Well, if our gods have abandoned us, we need to abandon the ship. Ain't nothing happening. But Paul speaks up again. He reminds the crew that they must stay on the ship if they don't want to die. And this time they believe him. They let the boat go. Now here's a lesson for you and I. Obeying God's Word is easy when it's easy. But it's hard when it's hard. <laughs> Obeying God's Word when the going gets tough is what we must do if we want to accomplish His purposes in this world. It's easy to let our fears or what others think or what others are doing in a moment distract us. It's easy for those things to cause us to doubt our trust in our God. As if to say us being still and us listening to the Lord and us observing what He commands and waiting for Him to send us into action must be affected by the actions of unbelievers. It ought not to be. We must be fortified in what we believe about the Lord. Trusting in Him. Standing our ground. Obeying Him. Not moving one inch until the Lord says so. Acts 27, 33-38. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food. So the storm seems to have subsided some. Since today is the 14th day, this is Paul saying, you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. 14 days without food. I can't make it 14 hours. <laughs> Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. When they all were in, uh, sorry, then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the weed into the sea. So now they're like, hey, we have this extra 14 days worth of food that we haven't eaten. Let's go ahead and throw that out too, because what do you know? Paul's God is with us. He's with us. It's been two weeks of awful moments. Now, I think all of us have been in those moments where you get a really difficult phone call or you're just in a really stressful situation. Maybe even it's at work. I hear people say all the time, I went all day and didn't eat a thing. It was just so busy, so stressful at work today. Others of us just stress eat, right? <laughs> but there's those moments in your life where it's, you just don't eat. You just, like, I, I can't do it. And this was that moment. For these guys. So Paul just intervenes. He says, hey, let's eat. Let's have some food. It'll strengthen us. But he doesn't just say, let's eat. What does he do? He uses it as an opportunity to give thanks to God for His protection and His provision in their life. What a tremendous display of devotion to the Lord. Now the thing about this moment is it's spiritually deep because he's giving thanks to God for the goodness of His provision. James writes, in the book of James, he says, 
that all good things come down to us from the Father above who gives good gifts. So Paul's recognizing this. It's also practically wise. He's just in that moment pointing people to the Lord. And we need men and women in this life. We need men and women in this church who will serve others in a world of darkness with real faith in the living God like this. Just practically yet deeply. Loving the Lord deeply and practically serving fellow neighbor. This is how we change a world. This is how we go to the end of the earth proclaiming Jesus Christ. It doesn't take you on your own going to the end of the world by yourself. It takes all of us going to our neighbor, to our coworker, to our friend, to our family member, to the stranger whom the Lord leads us to, and being faithful to talk about the Lord with them, to proclaim Him practically yet deeply spiritual. You know the beauty of this? is this is for all Christians. You know what's doubly beautifying about this? It's not above you. You're not below it. It's a mark that we all can attain, being deeply spiritual people who love our neighbor. God does this in every one of us as we yield ourselves to Him. It makes Him happy to do it. His display is also clear and appropriate. He doesn't go into some evangelistic bashing someone over the head with the Bible type moment. He doesn't yell at them, repent or burn. Right? He doesn't say, hey, everybody come into my bunkhouse and let's watch the Left Behind series together. You can laugh, it's okay. He... He just clearly points them to God again. Now remember how he started this whole thing. The God with whom I know and in whom I believe has spoken to me. That's how he started earlier when he gave the warning or the promise that they'll be saved. And now here he is displaying what it means to know God and to love God. And it's a way that we all can do it. It's very clear. It's very appropriate. Paul spoke, he prayed during times of hopelessness. Well, I can do that. I can speak and pray in times of hopelessness. He gives the crew, in doing so, he gives the crew an alternative perspective. They had just been praying to their gods and he didn't intervene. You know why? Because there's one true living God. That's it. And Paul shows his devotion. He gives them an alternative perspective. He gives them a ray of hope. It says that they were encouraged by this. They were strengthened, not only physically, but inwardly. They're strengthened. They're encouraged. He gives them something important to ponder. Look at this guy's devotion. Look at his fearlessness. Look at the way he stands for God. Look at the way he follows Him and he trusts Him. Gives them something to think about. 
Now, you and I can look for and should look for clear, appropriate ways to bear witness about the living God. To tell others about Jesus Christ in the public square. I just want to ask this question, kind of a diagnostic question for you to consider in your, in your heart. Does your obedience to and trust in God's Word give people something to ponder? Is it observable in your life? Now, sometimes we can be observable and not loving. So the second question is, is what they see encouraging? Now, this doesn't mean that love overlooks the sins of mankind. It just means rather than pointing, simply pointing out the sins of mankind, am I also pointing them to the Jesus who saves mankind? That's encouraging. It's not encouraging to have a spotlight shown on my sins unless there's a great Savior to bear the weight of my sin for me. That's encouraging. That's life-giving. That's transforming. That takes me from hiding in bushes with fig leaves over me like Adam did to now I'm walking out into the light, carrying my sin with me to a Savior who then covers me. Wow. What a gift God is. What a gift grace is. Acts 27, 39 through 44, the journey continues. Now when it's day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach and on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, the bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape, and then if they did make it, they would be killed for letting them go. Verse 43, But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump aboard first and make for the land. Sorry, jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest to go on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. So once again, the crew shows some fear as things don't go exactly right. And in doing so, they make an alternate plan. Hey, let's just kill the prisoners and swim ashore. We'll survive. They'll be dead. But that's better than letting them go. And Julius intervenes for the sake of Paul. Now, I don't know if this is because he just had a great respect for Paul. I don't know if this was because he was ordered specifically to get Paul to Caesar. Maybe it's that he's seeing that we need to keep Paul alive if any of us hopes to live because something's happening with him on board. I'm not sure. All I know is that everyone listens to Julius when he says, we're not doing that. They listen to his intervention. They follow his plan. And the Lord saves them all. Again, the Lord is working out his purposes through those who trust and obey his word. Now finally, 28, 1 through 10. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fear, 
fire, sorry, kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Ouch! When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, another, no doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. Justice is probably a reference to a God they believed in. They're saying justice is having its way. He's being rightly judged. Verse 5, He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Praise God. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now this is the way paganism works. It looks for a god in anything. Anything that's hard to explain, anything that's kind of miraculous, could be water moving, could be the sun rising, that thing becomes a god to them. He becomes untouchable. And this happens with Paul. Let's keep reading through 10. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man in the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sell, they put us put on board whatever we needed. So the natives welcome the shipwrecked crew. Paul immediately goes into servant mode where he's gathering sticks. He's trying to contribute to the needs there. Everybody's cold and wet. He said, we need a fire. In doing so, he gets snake bitten. The natives interpret this as judgment. Paul continues unaffected. They say, hey, this man's a god. But he isn't a god, right? No. He's being protected by the one true God. This event, this snake bite event, gives Paul an opportunity among the natives to share the gospel. Over the next three days or so, he heals Publius' father, then all the sick natives also. I believe that this physical healing led to spiritual healing by trusting in Jesus. After all, that's typically how God uses miracles throughout the Gospels and the Acts. In response, the natives provide a boat and all the supplies they need for their journey. And in this way, like a recurring drumbeat, we see that God's accomplishing His purposes through those who trust and obey His Word. Look at 11 through 16. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to uh, Puteoli, where we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Apius and or Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So 
uh, that map helps you see where Caesarea ended up in. They ended up in Rome from Caesarea on a really long journey. I just want to point out the irony of getting on a vessel with the twin Greek gods of protection sitting at the front and how that shouldn't be lost on us. Luke has done a wonderful job throughout this story, but also throughout Acts, of highlighting the difference of trusting and obeying pagan gods versus trusting and obeying the true God who acts providentially on behalf of His people. True protection. Two and a half years after the Lord guarantees that Paul will testify in Rome, he arrives. How many of you know trusting and obeying doesn't always mean immediacy, right? God does things on His time, amen? This is why we must trust and obey. This is why James says rejoice in your trials because your trials are making your faith stronger. It is true that God accomplishes His purposes through those who trust and obey His Word. And this shipwreck journey is just one more confirmation of this truth. But if God accomplishes His purposes through those who trust and obey His Word, then what should we do? First, we should trust His Word. The first word that you need to trust from God is His Word of salvation. If you are an unbeliever, you need to trust God's Word of salvation. Jesus says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus' promise there is life to all who will believe in Him. So if you're experiencing a life full of death, a life full of decay and destruction because of sin, and you've not yet placed your faith in Jesus, what are you waiting on? Come to Him quickly. Trust Him. And then believers, we never grow out of trusting that saving work, do we? I think we sometimes grow to a place where we forget it. Where we're not, it's not that we're unsure of it, we just overlook it. I think this is part of what contributes to our lack of urgency for lost people. Is, is we don't have a, we, we've lost our initial love for the Lord who saved us from sin. Don't lose that love. Continue in it. Remind yourself of it daily that Christ died to save sinners like you. And He did it. It's accomplished. So trust His Word of salvation. Secondly, trust His Word of providence. If you're a believer in here, trust that God is providentially moving you and ordering the events of your life for the greatest good and the most glory for His own name. Trust Him in that. This doesn't mean that you don't get outside of God's will and you just get to go do whatever you want and God somehow magically orchestrates that for your good. It just means that in all the lows and the highs of your life, God is making you more like His Son Christ. 
Romans 8, 28 through 30. Let me just read this. And we know that for those who love God, so there's an action here on our end that we love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. This means that from beginning to end, God is at the center of the work in your life. That initial calling and justification belongs to Him. That sanctification and glorification belongs to Him. Trust Him. Trust Him. Philippians 1, 6, And I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It means on that final day, that day of glorification, the work will be completed. And until then, God is constantly working in your life. He's not left you. He's not forgotten you. Go to Him. The second thing I think we must do if we want to join God in His purpose, first is trust His Word. Second is obey His Word. You obey for two reasons. You obey, one, for the sake of holiness. Throughout this narrative, we've seen the difference between believers and unbelievers. This is what holiness does. Holiness, by its very definition, means to be set apart. Specifically, set apart from the world or set apart from evil. And we are not as those who are better, but as those who are hiding themselves in the refuge of God's grace. Amen? In this way, we're set apart. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, talking about the gospel... Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. So on one hand, we have the promises of God that He's working in our lives. And on the opposite hand, we have the human responsibility of cleansing ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, meaning that we go to Him. We're trusting Him. We're obeying His Word. We're repenting of our sin. And in this way, Paul says, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of of God. So because God is such a great, holy, perfect, just God, it strikes a fear in me that if I am not that way, I will be cut off forever. And that fear is relieved in Christ, who is perfectly holy and just and righteous. And when we hide ourselves in Him, we confess our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus for salvation, He covers us with His righteousness. We have no need for fear now, but we have every right as a child to go to our Heavenly Father for grace and mercy in our time of need. And so we go boldly. This relieves us of having to hide ourselves in our sin. When you screw up and you stop following Jesus, when you do things that go against His Word, you don't have to grovel, you don't have to hide. You should mourn and you should repent quickly. And to do that means to go straight to the Lord with confession. Look what I have done. Cleanse me, God. 
That idea of being cleansed means turning from that sin and now following Jesus fully. This is what it looks like to obey for the sake of holiness. You also want to obey for the sake of mission. You want to be wise as we see Paul wise here. You want to be obedient as we see these early Christians being obedient. All of this is for the good of others and the glory of God. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 and, and 15 through 17 tell us this, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. So then, what does it mean to walk in love? Well, it doesn't mean walking in such a way that we're overlooking things and causing no harm to ourselves. Right? There's harm that comes in pointing out sin. There's harm that comes in uh, pointing others to Jesus. There's a harm to our reputation. There's a harm to what others think about us. And we fear that. That is not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is to lay yourself down, to give yourself up as He gave Himself up for us. It's to say, not my will, but your will be done. Not my life as most important, but your life as most important. Not my likability as most important, but the salvation of people's souls as most important. This is what it means to lay ourselves down. This is what it means to walk in love. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, it says. And then he goes on to say in verses 15 through 17, look carefully then how you walk. It means pay attention to what you're doing. Look at how you carry yourself, how you believe or don't believe, how you talk or don't talk, how you listen or don't listen, how you sin or don't sin. Look carefully at how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. People who know God. People who know right from wrong. Walk that way. Making the best use of the time. Meaning, you don't have all the time in the world. Use your time wisely. I meet with a man uh, weekly now, just by God's grace. Just put this man in my life as uh, Brother Ray, who I went to Brazil with. And my first interaction with Ray was one where I was really trying to kind of figure the guy out. He's very serious. He's very likable. But he just has that tone of, we're, we're going to get down to business in this meeting. So we were just meeting around things of concerning the trip. So we were meeting on a Zoom call, and uh, the feed cut out, and it was just me and Ray sitting there waiting on Dustin to join us again. And, I, it's, you know, it's kind of awkward, and... And I'm just trying to like, you know, Ray's just there and I'm there. And like, Ray, tell me a little about yourself. So he tells me kind of what he does. He's an entrepreneur, an investor. And he says, I, I was ill not too many years ago, just a few years ago. And the Lord used that moment to wake me up. I've been a believer for forever, but I realized then that I don't have a lot of time. He says, I'm devoting every moment of my day until my last breath to serving the Lord, to making disciples, to training men to serve the Lord. That's what it means to make the best use of your time. 
It's to say, what's the best thing I can do for the Lord right now in this moment? How can I use this time with my children to glorify God? How can I use this time with my spouse to make known Christ? How can I use this time to grow in my faith and love for others? How? What can I do now? And then you do it. You and I can do that. That's accessible to us. So he says, making the best use of your time. Why? Because the days are evil. Would you look into the news today or into your social media feed or into your own life and agree that the days are indeed evil? They are. I watched on that little computer in my hand this morning a man being beaten nearly to death. I've seen more killings on my phone in the last two weeks than I care to see in a lifetime. More hatred spewed. And I'm not talking about just from one group of people. I'm talking about all the groups of the peoples. And I want to cry out as Revelation does, Lord, come quickly. But I can't because I know what it would mean for the Lord to come quickly in judgment right now for so many, and I don't want that. I don't want that. There's too many who don't know Christ. Too many. I hope His grace comes quickly. I hope mercy comes quickly. I hope revival comes quickly. But I'm okay if He remains up there for a while while we keep working for Him here. I want to see more, more come to Him. And in this way, we align our hearts with what Paul says in Ephesians 5.17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we don't have to run into any and every controversy. We don't have to run in into every conspiracy theory. We don't have to run into every, you know, uprising here or there and voice our opinion. In fact, it's foolish to do so. But what we do need to do is pray. We need to seek God's Word. And we need to align our hearts with His. Our will to His will. Not His will to our will, like we try so hard to do. We need to pray that the Lord intervenes and that He uses us to do it. Amen? Amen. I know I've taken a lot of your time. I appreciate your patience this morning. Children, worshiping with you all, all these little faces, is so wonderful. So parents, those of you who are braving this idea of bringing your children into here, thank you. Thank you. I know it's not easy. I know it's scary. But it's good for our children to see their parents gather with believers. Amen? Keep up the hard work. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love you. We give glory to your name today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's not void. God, I pray you use it. 
as Hebrews lays out for us, to cut down to the very depths of our heart and soul. Transform us, God, to know you more fully. Help us to see you more clearly. And God, give us the boldness to walk each day as those who know and love Jesus Christ. Help us, Father. We are nothing without it. We need you. Lord, would you bring people to salvation? Would you save them from the bondage of sin? Deliver them from that. Set the captives free. Help people, Father, to know truly that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and the Spirit of the Lord resides in us as we believe in You. We want that freedom. Father, we love You. We thank You for today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.